Welcome to another episode of our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Visit our website for complete collections of your favorite old-time radio series. Remember to follow us so you won't miss new releases from SolvedMystery.com. Let me introduce myself. Bernard Shaw. The National Broadcasting Company presents another in a transcribed series of biographies in sound. They knew Bernard Shaw. In the next 55 minutes, you will hear from Sir Cedric Hardwick, Rebecca West, Bertrand Russell, John Mason Brown, Lady Astor, Norman Thomas, Lily Palmer, and others who knew George Bernard Shaw. Now, to guide this study into the personality of the Irish playwright, here is NBC's critic at large, Leon Pearson. Mr. Pearson. Ever since the turn of the century, we in the United States have been influenced by the wit and wisdom of George Bernard Shaw. For most of the 94 years of his life, Shaw shaped the mind of America. Feminism, socialism, militarism, politics, every sort of human behavior capable of being punctured by satire. For some 60 years, we have adored him, scorned him, rejected him, and paid him a million dollars. Very few were unaffected by him. And if he were here today, he would look around and say, Now, where did you all come from? And what did you come to see? An old man who was once a famous playwright. Well, here is what is left of him. Not much to look at, is it? However, pleasant to be find that I have so many friends. It's almost the only thing that a man of letters, a writer, playwright, artist, it's almost the only thing that he has left. And when I look round you, ah, I see some Americans there. I have friends everywhere. And one man, a very famous man in his way, used to say that I had friends everywhere, that I hadn't an enemy in the world, and that none of my friends liked me. Like him, Shaw was a man beyond ordinary likes and dislikes. He evoked extremes of adoration and abomination, and the people gathered here run the gamut of those feelings. He was very insulting and very rude. He had a big heart. All intellect and no heart. All children adored him. He succeeded in offending almost everybody. He was an event. Who the hell was Bernard Shaw? Who was he? Well, he was one of the two most important playwrights of all time. The number of actors, British and American, who have risen to fame with Shaw would make a who's who in the theater. Sir Cedric Hardwick. He was my godfather in the theater in many ways because it was owing to Shaw's personal interest in me that I really given my big opportunities in the theater. I recall Shaw saying to me once uh, at the conclusion of a rehearsal, you know, Cedric, he said, you're my fourth favorite actor. And I said, naturally, who are the other three? And he said, the three Marx brothers. <laughs> but I think that both in his writing... And in our relationship, the thing that impressed me and pleased me more than anything else was his devotion to the profession of acting. 
And I don't think many actors realize that but for a handful of men, of which, of course, Bernard Shaw is an outstanding example, Shakespeare is another, but for these men, actors would never have obtained the recognition that they have today. And I think there would be little more than vagabonds, strolling players, performing clowns. But a great deal of what these men have written and done for us has rubbed off us, and today we are a recognized profession, and with a few outstanding exceptions, considered fairly respectable people. A Bernard Shaw as a director, of course, was very much more concerned, perhaps, with the, uh, the meaning and significance of his plays than he was with effective performances. But his one passion, of course, was clarity in speaking. He would say on occasions, uh, what do you mean by a live horse? I haven't written a line about a live horse. I suppose you're trying to say life force. Shaw was not a director in the, uh, in the sense of a modern director of plays. He was not a schoolmaster who taught his actors how to act. He always thought that the actors could give him as much as he could give them. I remember frequently Shaw interrupting actors, including myself, saying, you know, the trouble is that you're following my directions. And you'd say, well, Mr. Shaw, isn't that what you want? He would say, no, these directions are put in not for the actor. They are put in for the reader, and I expect my actors to give me something very much better than I can give them. Lily Palmer went to Shaw to read for... Cleopatra. He was very insulting and very rude, and I got terribly angry. I was told, you know, to stand up because uh, to him, because once you get intimidated, then you're finished. He doesn't like it. And then afterwards, he made me laugh so much. Two weeks later, an old friend of his uh, saw him, and that's what he told him. He said, I made her angry, and I made her laugh. I wanted to see what she looked like. I mean, she's all right. She'll pass. <laughs> he, he talked, of course, of his early production of Caesar and Cleopatra, in which um, there's a, a man being killed off stage and has to give a loud cry. And the old boy said to me, nobody ever cried the right way for me until I went backstage and I did such a cry. He said, his little thin frame shook when he tried to show me the cry he gave. So that led to conversations about stage cries. And I said, uh, have you ever heard uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier's great cry in Oedipus when he finds out he's married his mother? No, he said no, and he put his finger behind his ear because he was a little deaf. And I went into a large and what I thought absolutely beautiful description of Larry's great cry. And the old boy listened and said, hmm, well, I think that's all wrong. I said, why, Mr. Shaw? Well, to start with, he said, why should that chap Oedipus, why should he be so upset when he finds he's married his mother? Should have added to his affection? Shaw was a shocker. One of the first plays of Shaw's to be presented here, Mrs. Warren's Profession, was so shocking to Anthony Comstock and the Society for the Suppression of Vice that the producer, Arthur Daly, was arrested and brought to trial for an offense to morals. Shaw, the blasphemer and the iconoclast. All great truths, he said, begin as blasphemies. Lawrence Langner, co-director of the Theater Guild, became Shaw's principal producer in this country. Curiously enough, his heart was always in his plays that uh, were iconoclastic. He liked, to, he liked to knock things down more than he liked to build things up. And uh, I have a letter from him in which he said, To my disgust, people say that St. Joan is my best play. One of the most important things about him was that he did not like anybody to cut any of his plays. He seemed to have an uncanny habit of finding out what was going on. For instance, um, somebody wanted to do one of his plays in a certain theater, and he cabled back and said, No, you can't do that. They're pulling the road up in front of that theater. 
After a few of these happenings, I went back to London and I said to GBS, how is it that you know about these things? Who tells you this? So he said, well, there's one of my admirers there, an old lady, and she goes to the theater with a book on her lap and she checks on every word that's in the play to see that the actors are saying it. I had occasion from time to time to ask him to cut his plays and he would always object to it. St. Joan, it was so long that we cabled to him and told him that, that the people were missing the last train home. Wouldn't he please cut it? Well, we got a cable back which read as follows. Run later trains. Modesty was not one of the failings of George Bernard Shaw. He said in the apple cart, One man that has a mind and knows it can always beat ten who haven't and don't. Clearly he had himself in mind. He had himself in mind in everything he wrote. Drama critic John Mason Brown knew him personally. The truth is, of course, that Shaw was more than a dramatist. He was more than a man. He was, in the realm of ideas as well as in the theater, an event. He was a person who never waited for the government, as he said, to give him the order of merit, because he had long ago bestowed that on himself. The world, in general, is apt to think of Shaw, thought of him when he was alive, and remembers him as someone who was a, a pantaloon, if not a downright uh, buffoon. But Shaw, to me, seems quite different. I used to try to maintain that part of his mind must have been made out of the kneecap of Leon Errold, because just at the moment when you expected to cross the stage, it tottered, and the serious thought collapsed. But Shaw, the Puritan, moved straight in to the realm of conscience with laughter as his weapon. He fooled because he felt men and women were so frequently foolish. He said he seemed witty. This was Shaw's own explanation. Not because he was witty, but because he dared to tell the truth. And the average people were so embarrassed by truth that they laughed in its presence rather than recognize its validity. What confused people was that he dared, in the presence of goodness, to laugh, even if he attacked a church. What he did was to throw a stone through a stained glass window, not to attack the religion, but to let the fresh air and the light in. He was the enemy of anything that kept air and light out. In 1928, Shaw tried to bring light and air to the subject of communism. His Intelligent Woman's Guide to Socialism and Capitalism became a best-selling tract in which he declared, and this is a quotation, Would you ever have supposed from reading the newspapers that communism, instead of being a wicked invention of Russian revolutionaries and British and American desperadoes, is a highly respectable way of sharing our wealth? But was he profound or merely stimulating and witty? Bertrand Russell says, Sure, like many witty men, considered wit an adequate substitute for wisdom. Indeed, I think that his wit, like that of many famous humorists, was developed as a defense against expected hostile ridicule. He could defend any idea, however silly, so cleverly, as to make those who did not accept it look like fools. When I was young, we all made a show of thinking no better of ourselves than of our neighbors. Shaw found this effort wearisome and had already given it up when he first burst upon the world. It used to be the custom among clever people to say that Shaw was not unusually vain, but only unusually candid. I came to think later on that this was a mistake. Like Tolstoy, 
He couldn't believe in the importance of anything he didn't know. Shaw was at his best as a controversialist. If there was anything silly or anything insincere about his opponent, Shaw would seize on it unerringly, to the delight of all those who were on his side in the controversy. At the beginning of the First World War, he published his common sense about the war. Although he did not write as a pacifist, he infuriated most patriotic people by refusing to acquiesce in the hypocritical high moral tone of the government and its followers. He was entirely praiseworthy in this sort of way until he fell a victim to adulation of the Soviet government and suddenly lost the power of criticism and of seeing through humbug if it came from Moscow. Excellent as he was in controversy, he was not nearly so good when it came to setting forth his own opinions, which were somewhat chaotic. Shaw had many qualities which deserve great admiration. He was completely fearless. He expressed his opinions with equal vigor, whether they were popular or unpopular. He was merciless towards those who did not deserve mercy, but sometimes also to those who did deserve it. Shaw believed in the importance of socialism and preached it out of doors from a cart in Hyde Park and indoors in the bosom of the Fabian Society. He fought with H.G. Wells over leadership of that group. John Parker knows the story. He is general secretary of the Fabian Society. He was a very good soapbox orator. He enjoyed standing on street corners and the heckling that took place and the riots that took place, particularly when he was a young man. He was also a very good lecturer. The famous prefaces to Shaw's plays were nearly all was originally lectures that he gave. But just because the press wouldn't report any of them, he came to the conclusion he would get them across to the world in some other way, and so he turned them into prefaces and put them in front of his plays. He was also a very good debater. He had many famous battles with H.G. Wells, the novelist, uh, in trying to uh, prevent him from getting control of the Fabian Society. Uh, the new gang, led by H.G. Wells, tried to oust uh, the old gang, led by Shaw and the Webbs. Uh, every uh, business meeting uh, was a debate between them. Uh, now, Wells was a very bad speaker, but a very good writer. He had a very falsetto, high voice, and when he made his case, Shaw only had to arise to knock him on all, about on all sides. But in the end, Wells packed up and walked out, giving up his efforts to capture the Fabian Society and make it a, a more revolutionary body. Shaw was also a very pronounced feminist in the days when it was unpopular for a man to be a feminist. He greatly respected his wife's judgment, but he's very down indeed on any woman however important, if he thought she was letting her sex down. And Shaw adored the reactions he aroused by being a feminist or by being a reformer of any kind. The American socialist Norman Thomas appraises Shaw the British socialist. I'm inclined to agree with those who, at the time of George Bernard Shaw's death, proclaimed him in accents of praise or blame as more responsible than any single Briton for the kind and degree of socialism achieved in Great Britain. 
It was a verdict which Shaw himself would have greeted with mixed emotions. But he never would have denied the importance of socialism in his own life or the extent of his devotion to it. His greatest contribution was his role in the Fabian Society, which played so vital a part in creating and propagandizing British-type socialism and bringing into being the British Labour Party. Few Americans know that the Shaw, who was so contemptuous in refusing requests to speak in America, devoted 12 years, while his star was steadily rising as critic and playwright, to speaking three times a week on street corners and in obscure halls for the socialist cause. But he was far from content with the new conventions and new limitations of labor unionism and parliamentary socialism. The unfortunate thing was that in his old age, this discontent, as well as certain implications in his own philosophy, made the author of it join the apologists for dictatorship and political inquisition. For example, in 1938, Shaw wrote Lady Astor that, I quote, all anti-Mussolinians are idiots, close quote. In one of his famous prefaces, Days of Judgment, written, I think, in 1934 or 35, Shaw defended the Russian political inquisition as necessary and on the whole mild and merely temporary. As late as September 1939, after the terrible purges in the USSR and after Stalin had joined Hitler in the rape of Poland, Shaw hailed the cruel and cynical dictator as the greatest of statesmen. From afar, he hymned the praise of the communist regime, which at close at hand would have destroyed him. It was a melancholy spectacle of the fallibility of great minds and the frightening appeal of communism to strangely assorted temperaments. But at home in England, the old Shaw never crusaded for communism as the young Shaw had crusaded for socialism. The labor and socialist movement in Britain if a bit stodgy and prosy for Shaw's taste, was essentially wiser than the genius to whom it had owed so much. I find it a bit comforting that sometimes the people collectively are wiser than the pundits. People wiser than pundits. I dare say if Shaw were alive today, aged 99, he would be agitating the people to drop the H-bomb off the surface of the earth. Shaw was a pacifist. Here is the doctrine in his own voice. The pacifist movement against war takes as its charter the ancient document called the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon is a very moving exhortation, and it gives you one first-rate tip, which is to do good to those who despitefully use you and persecute you. I, who am a much-hated man, have been doing that all my life, and I can assure you that there is no better fun but such a command as love one another, as I see it, is a stupid refusal to accept the facts of human nature. Pray, are we lovable animals? Do you love the rate collector? Do you love Mr. Lloyd George? And if you do, do you love Mr. Winston Churchill? 
Have you an all-embracing affection for Messieurs Mussolini, Hitler, Franco? I do not love all these gentlemen. And even if I did, how could I offer myself to them as a delightfully lovable person? I find I cannot like myself without so many reservations that I look forward to my death, which cannot now be far off, as a good riddance. The lesson we have to learn is that our dislike for certain persons, or even for the whole human race, does not give us any right to injure our fellow creatures, however odious they may be. As I see it, the social rule must be live and let live. Live and let live. But if words could kill, Shaw would have murdered millions. His secretary put up with him for 30 years. She became Shaw-proof and admired him to the end. Blanche Patch. He was an ideal employer. Nothing ever upset him. He, um... Never seemed to worry. Of course, I made mistakes sometimes. But uh, he took it for granted I'd done my best. I may say, he always forgot to thank one when one had done a very hard job. Not one word did he ever give me praise, but then that was typical of the man. He was very satisfied with it. I remember the, the um, really the only little fallout I had with him, and that was by letter, was that... Uh, uh, during his latter years, when, of course, I was getting older, and he was then engaging a man whose presence I resented very much as in the, in the place as taking on some of the work. And uh, he said that uh, he was doing it to relieve me, to make my work easier. And he said, I'm only going to leave you the um, uh, typing. Well, I wrote to him and I said, I know it's only your love of teasing makes you say that you are now looking on me as a mere typist. Well, then he wrote to me and he said, My dear Blanche, you've given me a jolt at last. We have been together all these years during which you have transcribed almost every word I have written and you've seen nothing in them but a love of teasing, a form of cruelty which I specially abhor and have never practised. To save you from being written off as the stupidest woman on earth, I must give you a testimonial. You are sure proof, but you are not in the least stupid, that you are sober, honest, industrious, and have been for countless years in your present post goes without saying. You are intelligent, sensible, self-reliant, kindly, useful, competent, and almost unbelievably even-tempered and self-controlled. You are the least vain and touchy woman in the world. The trouble you have not given me and the help you have given me are immeasurable, and no man knows your value better than I do. It has been a great advantage to us both that you have been completely unaffected by my doctrine and my philosophy and held your own against it. But it has had one drawback. You have mistaken my philosophy for mere fun and malice. I am horrified. There he is, tongue-in-cheek again, with his secretary, with his public, with his publishers. Dodd, Mead and Company were his publishers here in this country for 20 years. Edward Dodd, Jr., we learned early and we learned fast what sort of man we were associated with. He wrote his own contract, as lucid, precise, fair, and legal a document as I've ever seen. And also, of course, entirely unconventional and unlike any other author-publisher agreement. 
We question one provision. The contract was to run for five years only. Let me read you from his letter answering our query. He starts his letter off with the gay old refrain from Whittacombe Fair. Dear Dodds both, Chase, Meade's ghost, Lewis, old Uncle Tom Cobbley and all. The limit of five years will probably be quite forgotten by us as the agreement goes on automatically to all eternity if we are satisfied with it. But if Frank goes mad and Edward takes to drink and Chase is hanged and Lewis takes to publishing pornographic literature in his Comstock for it, how am I to get out unless I can break at six months' notice? From that day forth, solemnity never existed again. Shaw wrote the first draft of most of his plays in shorthand, a shorthand he had devised largely for himself and his secretary, Blanche Patch, is said to be the only person who could decipher it. His manuscripts and final draft were models of perfection, and never has a typographical error been found, and always the most minute corrections and alterations were made in his own hand. After the manuscript was in type, let me quote from a letter he once wrote to a rare book dealer. I shall always disparage relics because I am an Irish Protestant in the marrow of my bones. I tear up manuscripts with savage glee, though I suppose you could sell them all for me at 300 pounds an ounce. I tore up St. Joan, except for ten pages which had dates on them, and I did the same with the apple cart. So if ever you are offered the complete original manuscript for a million or so, beware. They will be forgeries. After the book was published, let me quote again. I will have nothing to do with schools and colleges at any price. No book of mine shall ever, with my consent, be that damnable thing a school book. Let them buy the dollar editions if they want them. By a school edition, they mean an edition with notes and prefaces, full of material for such questions as, Give the age of Bernard Shaw's great aunt when he wrote You Never Can Tell, and state the reasons for believing that the inscription on her tombstone at Ballyhooley is incorrect. The experienced students read the notes and prefaces and not the plays and forever after loathe my very name. The name of George Bernard Shaw will be heard again after we pause 10 seconds for station identification. Now, part two of They Knew Bernard Shaw. And here again is Leon Pearson. Now that Shaw is gone, some of his best friends come forward to tell of his private life as they would not have done earlier... An English actress, Lilla McCarthy, was starred in The Devil's Disciple, Fanny's first play, and others. Today, she is Lady Lilla Keeble. She knew GBS as a friend at home at Ayat St. Lawrence. Sunday at Ayat St. Lawrence was a day of quiet and rest. Early in the morning, Shaw would run round the garden doing his breathing exercises. After breakfast, we would walk in the country lanes and sometimes carry on our conversation with quotations from Shakespeare. Or Dickens. His memory was amazing. In the afternoon, he spent a great deal of time in the dark room developing photographs. In between whiles, he would play his pianola. Music seemed to mean more to Shaw than literature. He declared that his master in drama was Mozart. But this I would like to stress. There were no hectic discussions and no displays of cleverness. Shaw is the best companion in the world. 
He never forces conversation when he is alone with his friends. In those days, he was a very strong swimmer. I was not. He used to tell me to put one hand on his shoulder and just swim on and on. We would find ourselves well out to sea. Then a change would come over shore, a sea change. He was vigorous on land, but when swimming, he became tranquil. He would say as we swam, we are in another world, Lila. And if I were afraid, have no fear, Lila. Gently and slowly does it. Shaw was always a chivalrous and kind man. But you must not tell him so. Too late to tell him so. But others would. Lord Astor, son of Lady Astor, remembers that Christmas always meant a visit from Shaw at Cliveden, the Astor estate. The first year he came, all us children were very, very nervous. What this famous man would be like. He was a man of the most charming manners imaginable, who was absolutely delightful to children. He wasn't in the least frightening, and we all adored him. He was very tall, very slim, with his sort of Santa Claus face and beard. A strong Irish brogue. He used to wear peculiarly cut knickerbocker suits and knitted gloves with a sort of argyle check on them. He used to get up before breakfast and stride in an exaggerated walk the whole quarter mile down to the fountain and back, one would see this peculiar figure. He was the most delightful conversationist who used to enjoy showing off. He would love to tease and to exaggerate and to pull people's leg. He, he was a wonderful actor, and he liked to do imitations, including one of himself, his own voice played on a record of different speeds. He used to say that a certain famous English actor would never be allowed, would never allow himself to do anything on a gramophone because if it's put a little too slow, slow, his inherent cockney voice appeared. And he used to say that if he was put on slow, it was like any old Irish beggar in the streets of Dublin trying to get a sixpence. And then it became rather like an Irish lawyer talking. And then it became for a moment normal. Then it became madder and madder. And then it was madder like a... I don't know if it's going to go ahead like that. We had the whole family roaring with laughter as the old boy gesticulated this glorious, rich Irish accent. And as I said, all children adored him. Lady Astor once said, when Mrs. Shaw died, she left him to me. You see, she didn't trust women. She didn't like many women. She liked Mrs. Webb, Beatrice Webb, and she was devoted to me because I was devoted to her. And I never have been the kind of woman women were jealous of, you see. And so she left him to me. She, he, he adored Charlotte, and she adored him. They were very, very happy. And when she was ill, she took ill in, during the war, you know. I was down Plymouth, and she said, you must come at once, Charlotte's ill. So I started up at once and I got there and it was too late and then the next day when the funeral came on he came by to take me to the funeral and I just by way of making conversation I said um, GBS did our Charlotte like your mother and he said oh, my she adored her until she got me but once she got me she paid no attention to my mother and we on the way to the funeral believe it or not we began reminiscing and before we got there I said GBS pull yourself together we're going he said no he said I, I buried Charlotte last night. I said, what did you do? He said, for two hours, I 
played all the things she liked on the piano. He was a beautiful player. He adored Charlotte. Mm. And he was really never the same man without, after she left. Well, I'd go to see him every day, and I went to see him on the Monday. He had his accent, and he looked, and he said, What, have you come to heal me with Christian science? I said, No, I haven't come to heal you. I've come to bury you. It's about the time you were dying. And then, of course, he began to laugh, and he said, I wish you'd come, Nancy. I can't stay here any longer. If any of you had come in, his brain would have been as brilliant as ever, for he hadn't lost his memory, none of his faculties. But he did say that last day, he kept saying, I think of Charlotte so often. He was the cleanest-minded, he was the kindest, he was the simplest man, but he was an actor, and he was Irish. And whenever, not that he ever went back to Ireland, but whenever he wanted to get out a thing, he said, I'm not English, I'm Irish. English friends of this Irishman, warm English friends. The Shaw was an Irish rebel to the last. What do the Irish say? With unmistakable accent and accuracy, author Frank O'Connor says... I think Irish people have always had an especial fondness for Shaw, even though they saw so very little of him. He was gay, and as Yeats said of him, he was the only man who could really smite their enemies for them. But all the same, there was a mystery about that very kind man, and I think I know what it was. You see, Shaw's father was a bit of a drinker. Finally, his wife and daughter left him, but Shaw stayed on with him in Dublin for about a year. And then Shaw left him too. And up to the time of his marriage, not only did Shaw never revisit Ireland, but he wouldn't stay in a hall where the Irish question was being discussed. Shaw says somewhere in some book, I suppose you could say we deserted him. They did a great deal more than desert him. Not only had they deserted him, they'd left him to die alone and to be buried alone. Now, there are cold-hearted people to whom things like that mean nothing at all. But the warm-hearted, generous Shaw wasn't one of them. Shaw just wasn't a theoretical skunk like Cezanne, uh, who was too busy to go to his old mother's funeral. Shaw was an ordinary human being, and you don't do things like that unless you've already been deeply hurt. And you don't do them even then without hurting yourself worse. And that's, I think, what makes him so different from other great Irishmen. His childhood was exactly like Joyce's or Yeats. But whereas when they left Ireland, one went to study St. Thomas Aquinas and the other to study William Blake, Shaw went to the British Museum to study the manners and rules of good society, the only Irishman who ever brought himself up on an etiquette book. Now, there's a gap in Shaw's work where the heart, and he had a big heart, should be. It comes out whenever deep emotion is called for. As, for instance, when he describes in a letter the cremation of his sister. Lucy burned with a bright blue flame, he says. Now, in that, there's an almost hysterical evasion of emotion. Make what you like of that. It's just another aspect of Shaw, and I don't profess to understand it. He's the only great extrovert that we have in Ireland, and yet his work is haunted by the problem of the introvert. But that fact that the mystic and the poet in him were oppressed doesn't mean that they weren't there. Uh, they were there, all right. R.A.E., the Irish poet, could never have said, and yet, if ever an angel of God walked this earth in the form of a man, his name was Bernard Shaw. An angel, did you say? Well, to a certain American author, an offending angel, Vincent Sheehan. At times, during his years, 
he um, succeeded in offending almost everybody. I can remember uh, I lunched at his house on the day when the uh, fall of France was announced. Uh, I was, of course, very shaken, journalism being my profession primarily. Uh, I was very shaken indeed, and I was shocked to the depths by the way Mr. Shaw carried on. He held forth all through lunch about what a lucky thing it was that the French had finally caved in. And he said, uh, now they'll get they'll fulfill the ambition of the past four centuries. They'll be able to make war on England. That's what they've always wanted to do. Well, I was very, very shocked. And uh, thought, well, this is no time for buffoonery and so on and so forth. But you know, he was very nearly right. He was very, they came within an inch of making war on England when the Vichy government was established. He had that faculty of being right about things... But how could he have known? Was it merely an impertinence that fell true? Rebecca West, authoress, makes her appraisal. I may uh, seem to be saying some ungracious words about George Bernard Shaw because I don't think he was really a great thinker. I think he was one of the most foolish writers on political science that have ever gained a following. And I think the proof of that lies in John Bull's Other Island, in which he confidently applied his ideas to Ireland and predicted that if that country attained home rule, that would be the end of Roman Catholicism within its frontiers, which has certainly not been the case. But Bernard Shaw was a great writer because, in a way, in an age which had let its prose get tired and shopworn, he wrote beautiful 18th century English. It's always refreshing to read his prefaces. There really is language that lives. And also he had a gift of poetical intuition of character. He could travel further back into the soul than most other explorers, and he could find the fantasies that lie in its furthest depths. I don't feel that he'd anything to say about St. Joan, which was new or interesting from an intellectual point of view. But he showed by sight and sound that peculiar kind of courage, very downright yet quite magical, which through the ages men have always seen in their dreams as the armor of virgin youth. There were many dramatists of his own time who knew quite well what they were doing, and they pursued their proper aims with sometimes more craft and good sense than he did. I think Goldsworthy was in several ways a better dramatist, and Breer was a much better social dramatist in the point of view of sense. But it was Shaw, and Shaw only, who created the great, the truly great St. Joan. The record shows no comment by Shaw on Rebecca West, but on women in general, on marriage, oh yes, some of the best Shavian phrases. From Man and Superman, hear now the voices of Charles Lawton, Charles Boyer, and Agnes Moorhead. Marriage is the most licentious of human institutions. Oh, well, really? I say the most licentious of human institutions. That is the secret of its popularity. And a woman seeking a husband is the most unscrupulous of all the beasts of prey. The confusion of marriage with morality has done more to destroy the conscience of the human race than any other single error. Come, come, and I do not look shocked. You know better than any of us that marriage is a man trap, baited with simulated accomplishments and elusive idealizations. 
And men, I suppose, never throw off the mask when their bird is in the net. The husband never becomes negligent, selfish, brutal. Oh, 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 never. What do these recriminations prove, Anna? Only that the hero is as gross an imposter as the heroine. Oh, it's all nonsense. Most marriages are perfectly comfortable. Perfectly is a strong expression, Anna. What you mean is that sensible people make the best of one another. Send me to the galleys and uh, chain me to the prisoner whose number happens to be next before mine, and I must accept the inevitable and make the best of the companionship. Many such companionships, they tell me, are touchingly affectionate, and most are at least uh, tolerably uh, friendly, but that does not make it chain a desirable ornament, nor the galleys and a boat of bliss. Oh, pooh, at all events. Let me take an old woman's privilege again and tell you flatly that marriage peoples the world and debauchery does not. Well, you have done your best, you virtuous ladies and others of your way of thinking. You have taught women to value their own youth, health, shapeliness and refinement above all things. Well, what place have squalling babies? Household cares in this exquisite paradise of the senses and emotions. Is it not the inevitable end of it all that the human will shall say to the human brain, invent me a means by which I can have beauty, passion, without their wretched penalties, their trials, their worries, their illnesses and agonies and risks of death, their retinue of servants and doctors and schoolmasters? All this, Senor Don Juan, is realized here in my realm. Shaw once said, The fickleness of the women I love is only equaled by the constancy of the women who love me. But did he care for women? Leonard Lyons. Someone mentioned Dr. Freud's comment about him, all intellect and no heart. That's nonsense, said Shaw. I've been to the movies and felt an irresistible desire to kiss Mae West. When Morris Evans was casting St. Joan, Shaw suggested, Have a man play St. Joan. In Shakespeare's time, men played women's roles. Men make the best women anyway. When he was introduced to the tennis champion, Helen Wills, he said, When players are as pretty as you are, tennis should be played in high grass and without a ball. And to a well-known Minsky stripteaser, he wrote, As long as more people will pay to see a naked body than to see a naked brain, the drama will languish. But the naked brain of Shaw pulled him in at the box office. Shaw resisted women for a long time. He married at the age of 40. Married his nurse... Charlotte Payne Townsend. And he said later, she wouldn't let me get out of bed until I married her. But they lived together until she died at the age of 86. Sir Cedric Hardwick, what was the marriage like? Mrs. Shaw certainly was uh, a tremendous protector of him. She kept people away from him, and she also looked after his creature comforts. She understood his strange diets extremely well, and I suppose found many of them very trying. She very frequently complained to me that when she went abroad, she had great difficulty in finding the right kind of vegetarian foods for him. He liked various sorts of nuts and things. So that I imagine that she had quite a hard life in keeping house for him. But of course, naturally, living with Shaw, she had to listen to him a great deal because anybody who was near Shaw had to listen to him a great deal. And she very, very infrequently herself said very much so she would occasionally contradict him or prompt him much to his annoyance. But I sometimes wonder whether 
in the case of Shaw, it was a case of a woman having the last word, even against Bernard Shaw, because when she died, she left her money to an institution, as you know, for teaching the Irish good manners. The truth is, Mrs. Shaw was often bored with her garrulous husband. She'd heard his stories too often. But she knew how to handle him. Bertrand Russell recalls a certain luncheon. Lunching with Mr. and Mrs. Shaw in Adelphi Terrace was a somewhat curious experience. Mrs. Shaw was a very able manager and used to provide Shaw with such a delicious vegetarian meal that the guests all regretted their more conventional menu. But he could not resist a somewhat frequent repetition of his favorite anecdotes. Whenever he came to his uncle, who committed suicide by putting his head in a carpet bag and then shutting it, a look of unutterable boredom used to appear on Mrs. Shaw's face. And if one was sitting next to her... One had to take care not to listen to Shaw. This, however, did not prevent her from solicitude for him. I remember a luncheon at which a young and lovely poetess was present in the hopes of reading her poems to Shaw. As we said goodbye, Shaw informed us that she was staying behind for this purpose. Nevertheless, when we departed, we found her on the mat. Mrs. Shaw, having maneuvered her there, by methods which I was not privileged to observe. When I learnt, not long afterwards, that this same lady had cut her throat at Wells because he refused to make love to her, my respect for Mrs. Shaw became even greater than before. A woman of strategy. It might even be said that her strategy led to Shaw's writing St. Joan. Lawrence Langner tells it, the only reason that St. Joan was given was because Mrs. Shaw wanted him to write it. Um, and she used to spread copies of books about St. Joan all over the house. There'd be one at the side of his bed table, there'd be one on the dining room table, and one day he came down and said to her, you know, I've got a wonderful idea. I'm going to write a play about St. Joan. His idea. But she was not the only woman who stimulated him. During their 45 years of married life, Shaw carried on a correspondence mostly romantic and affectionate with another woman, Mrs. Patrick Campbell. The love affair began in 1912 when Shaw called at the home of Mrs. Campbell in London to discuss his Pygmalion. I fell head over ears in love, he says. With the ecstasy of a lovelorn schoolboy, he wrote, Stella, 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 and on and on. Stella, Stella, 28 times he wrote it, and then... I think of you with a frightful yearning, with a tragic despair to this beautiful woman of the stage. I am deeply faithful to you, faithful beyond all love. And to this, Mrs. Campbell replied, such a wonderful, beautiful letter. If I could write like you, I would write letters to God. He complained that he could not write poetry to express his love. <laughs> with a wry humor, he said, if I try to make verses, I can think of no rhyme for Stella but umbrella. And only too damn well I love Mrs. Campbell and horrors of that sort. This was a secret love, but not a secret admiration. As for Mrs. Shaw, apparently she was aware of both. Alexander Walker tells of lunching once with Shaw and his wife. And this is a quotation. When Shaw talked about Stella Campbell for an hour and a half, 
until Mrs. Shaw was driven to beating a tattoo with her salad fork as a way of warning him that she couldn't stand another word on the subject. And yet, if Mrs. Shaw could have known the whole truth, she might have been less concerned. The whole truth seems to be that Shaw was in love only as a vegetarian. The yearnings he knew were spiritual and intellectual. Shaw was always looking at himself in his own intellectual mirror, and that scrutiny kept him from any rash act of love. Letters, yes, but only letters. When Mrs. Campbell, who was a widow, realized this, she quite promptly married another man. And in looking back on their affair, she wrote rather wearily, I knew you were playing the solicitor stunt. It creeps into all you say and write and do. With the exception of one or two lovely letters to me, the stunt that wearies me so much, that has worried me for years, that has stood in the way of your being a Shakespeare, a poet. By now, Mrs. Campbell was quite, quite disillusioned and old and tired and in financial need. She proposed the publication of their correspondence. Shaw wanted to edit out all intimate passages. She argued this would ruin the effect, and he replied, If they are love letters from a married man to a woman who is not his wife, and who is engaged at the time to another man whom she has subsequently married, the difficulty becomes a wild impossibility. If the man publishes them, he is a blackguard. If the woman publishes them, she is a rotter and a courtesan. You might as well ask me why you should not pick pockets or sell yourself on the street. Now that all three principals are dead, Mrs. Campbell, Mrs. Shaw, and G.B.S. himself, the story can be told. It is told in the publication of the letters, the secret, fervent, passionate letters in which this great intellect, who scoffed at the human frailty of love and always wrote with his tongue in his cheek, spelled out his own love with his heart upon his sleeve. They tell the story not only of an amazing love affair, but I think the story of Shaw's own limitations. Perhaps it's not too much to say that only a man who could make desperate love to a woman by correspondence and still leave her alone, only such a man could so skillfully animate the creatures of his own imagination and still leave them grimacing and kicking like puppets in the end. When Shaw was a blithe young spirit of 72, he wrote to Mrs. Campbell on death as follows. When I am dead, my dearest, sing no sad songs for me, but cast my spells on Mr. Wells and ask a handsome fee. Among the guests at Shaw's 90th birthday party was Leonard Lyons. At my age, said Shaw, every new breath is an adventure. He didn't want to be a centenarian. I dreaded, he said. And as for wanting to live my life over again, no, it would be a confession that I have wasted it. Shaw was courteous that birthday afternoon, although he said courtesy is a waste of time, and at 90 I have no time to spare. To the ladies, he smiled, I should be the most sought after of men. I'm the ideal catch, a rich widower, 90 years old. Once he wrote me, I could not afford to marry till I was past 40. Since then, I've made enough, and enough is as good as a feast. Enough? At 91, he was collecting over $200,000 a year in royalties from America. More royalties than any other playwright in the history of the theater. I am now a classic, he said, but better than Shakespeare, because I am a classic who still collects 15% royalties. Perhaps in another thousand years, he said, at I.O. St. Lawrence, when the world has read all my books and learned from them to be reasonable, then there will be an age fit for anybody to grow old in. The end was near. 
He paid his bills, rechecked his papers and his will, and got his affairs in order. I don't mind, said Bernard Shaw. It's just as if I were going away on a vacation. Shortly before Shaw went away on that vacation, he was visited by Sir Cedric Hardwick. The last time I saw Bernard Shaw was the summer before he died. He frequently referred to his age, which I think uh, irritated him, annoyed him very much. When his powers began to fail, he complained very frequently that he couldn't die. He said he tried to die many times, but that um, he hadn't succeeded so far. I'd taken my boy, who was at that time, I think, 18, to see him. And just as we were leaving, he drew himself up to his full shavian six feet, you know, and said in uh, his own distinctive way, well, Edward, he said, one day you will be very proud, probably, to say to your friends, I once shook hands with Bernard Shaw. Then he paused and he says, and your friends will say, and who the hell was Bernard Shaw? (laughs) Who is he? Well, I should say that Shaw belongs to an age not for all time. Yet what he has done to this age, spoofing it, shocking it, pricking it, shaping it, will be recorded for all time. Indeed, he is so close to us that his spirit seems to hover over this hour. Though he is gone, he couldn't bear not to be part of all this and to say goodbye again. Before I go, let me give a word of advice. The way to have a happy life is to be too busy doing what you like all the time, having no time left to you to consider whether you're happy or not. And, oh, look here, I, I'm getting talking. I must stop. Well, it's very pleasant to have seen you all here and to think that you are my audience and all that because I, I'm a born actor myself. I like an audience. I'm like a child in that respect. Well, goodbye. 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 Goodbye, all of you. That was George Bernard Shaw. This has been another in a transcribed series of Biographies in Sound, produced under the supervision of Joseph Myers for NBC News. They Knew Bernard Shaw was edited by Gloria Kay. Join Horace Sutton for the NBC Travel Bureau tonight over most NBC radio stations. Thank you for joining us and enjoying our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Please remember to leave us a review and to follow us for frequent releases.